This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible. Well, actually, only the ones that I paid no more than 25 cents for. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 23rd episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Primordials number 9 from Techno Comics, cover dated November 1995. But first, just a little feedback. Back in episode 19, I covered an issue of Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme, and I got a few emails about it from faithful listeners. Jason Trenner wrote, Well, that was an interesting issue to review. Glad even with Doom not exactly in the story much, it was still pleasing for you. He then moved on to the backup story, which featured the Fear Lords. All the Fear Lords are working together to take over the world. The one Fear Lord that is a hero named Scarecrow, because he looks like, well, a Scarecrow, told them where to stick it, as he intended to safeguard the Earth. I checked on Mike's Amazing World, and this backup arc ran for three issues. And if I can find the other two, I thought maybe I'd just cover them as an episode. Because the way Jason described it, it sounds pretty interesting. But we'll see. Uh, Jason then has me add some books to my quarterbin wish list. In this case, Secret Defenders 4 and 5. I think you'd at least consider it a fun two-issue tale that does relate somewhat to the backup strip from this issue. I have put those on my list. But you can never quite tell what you're going to find in the cheap bins. Ben Avery wrote a very brief message about a particular word choice I used in covering the book. Did you just verb thought bubbles? I think you did verb thought bubbles. Anyway, another fun episode. Thanks. I replied with a very snarky answer, telling Ben that even though I'm not a fancy pants comic book writer like he is, I can still make up words if I want to. (laughs) Thanks, Jason and Ben, for the feedback. Uh, You can send the show an email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. Now, on to the comic for this episode. Primordials, number nine, had a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this book at nearly a 90% markdown. The story, which actually did not have a title was written by Christopher Mills with a co-plotting assist being given to editor James Chambers. The art was by Kirk Manley and Mike Barrero. The cover, which was done by Ron Randall, shows a long-faced red alien with his claws outstretched ominously surrounding the Earth. It is a little 90s-ish, that's for sure, but it's not totally over the top. The issue itself starts with a headline from the Phoenix Globe proclaiming alien attacked by terrorists. You know, I mentioned a second ago that there was no title to this story. I I guess it's possible to consider alien attacked by terrorists as the title, as it's the largest font type on the first page, but I don't think so, because that action actually happened last issue, and it's just being referred to here, so I don't think there was a title. Be that as it may, in a diner, Outside of Phoenix, Arizona, a waitress and her customers are watching the Expositional News Network. Thank you, Mike Bailey. To recap, the alien envoy, Zerus, 
has been meeting with representatives of the newly formed United Nations Special Committee on Extraterrestrial Affairs for the past three days. We learn that world leaders are meeting to debate and discuss the ramifications of the first contact. For example, we see the Vatican struggling to calm their flock. Zerus does look like a classic red devil, for one thing. The Middle Eastern nation of Parmistan has protested that the U.S. has taken custody of the alien, claiming that the Americans forced the alien spacecraft down in yet another example of Western imperialistic oppression of peace-loving peoples and nations of the world. Behind closed doors in Parmistan, we see the leaders meet, and their private rhetoric is as passionate as their public statements. They will regret their arrogance. The creature is the means by which our people shall ascend to supremacy over the bloated, indolent infidels of the West. Meanwhile, in space, four other aliens are approaching Earth. They are almost out of energy and power, but their leader, Prime Master, believes that he can carry them all to their destination. But once we arrive, my power will be exhausted. My batteries can draw from vacuum zero-point energy to recharge themselves, but it'll take time. Unfortunately, none of your atmosphere suits, which Prime Master does not need, by the way, have enough air to keep you alive that long. We don't know what we'll face when we reach Earth. Without power, I won't be able to protect you. So it's clear we have no choice, one of the others says. We must set for Earth immediately. Back on Earth, in a lavish penthouse apartment above a restless New York City, a Mr. McMahon is complaining to a young scientist named Stuart that he was unable to meet Zerus. Just from this issue, I don't know who Mr. McMahon is. I just know that Stuart is dating his daughter, Jess. Stuart is the one who discovered the original signal that preceded Zerus's arrival and has since found a second signal, which implies that another batch of aliens are coming. And the message seems to be that they are coming for Zerus. If there really are more aliens on their way, all we have to do is meet them before they fall into the hands of the politicians. He then says that they'll know something soon, as he is modeming his data right now to one of his science colleagues. Remember, in 1995, that would really have been a high-tech move. One of Stewart's professors, Dr. Karagijian, arrives, and they talk about the unrest in the city. The professor comments that being shaken up by the aliens' arrival is natural. Almost all of the great moments in history pale in comparison beside this one. They talk about Zerus's resemblance to a pterodactyl and whether or not it is possible that his species could have evolved so similarly on another planet to animals evolving here on Earth. Later in the evening, we get relationship drama as Jess's parents want her to stop dating Stuart as he is getting in over his head dealing with the aliens and he may end up on the government's bad side if he keeps hiding news of this second signal that he's intercepted. Then finally, on page 17, we get a scene with Zerus. He has been staying at an army-guarded tent and learning English from Akami Nagumo. They begin to speak about his purpose in coming to Earth. You said you're fleeing an oppressive alien race, the Maje. They're powerful and dangerous, and they've dominated my people for a long time. 
they are evil. Why are they after you? Because I resisted their rule. They decide that Xerus is a freedom fighter. He likes that terminology. Nagumo tells him that it is something that many of us here on Earth can understand and respect. She then asks him why he came here specifically to Earth to warn you. The Magi are coming. If you are not prepared for them, they will, what is the word, conquer you. A military man observing the interview from a remote location picks up a phone. Colonel, you may want to send a courier to pick up the new tapes. You're going to want to hear this right away. Meanwhile, in space, the four aliens who we can safely assume are the evil magi bent on conquering the Earth continue their approach. How are your energy levels, Prime Master? Dangerously low, the green-skinned leader says. How are you holding up? I believe the others are unconscious. We don't have much time left. We have enough, Prime Master says, grabbing his three comrades and blasting through the atmosphere. And these aliens crash land with a mighty wahoom into the ground outside a diner outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Hey, kids, comics. Hey, Michael. Yeah, Dad? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved! We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have the new episodes still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, kids, comics! So remember, Hey, Kids, Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.com still every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Yeah. And we're back. Now, some of the Christmas shopping I did for my daughter Emily this past year was at Half Price Books, of which we have two locations near us. At the nearer one to us, I picked her up some discounted BBC Doctor Who audios, and I went through their dollar and 50 cent comics, but didn't see a whole lot there, to be honest. Then after Christmas, I talked to her about some other audios that I didn't get, but she was actually interested in them as well, so when I was in the neighborhood of that second half-price books on the other side of town, a few days later, between Christmas and New Year's, I thought I would poke around there for more of these audios for Emily. And I went through their dollar bins, and off in the corner, 
I saw a couple of beaten up short boxes priced at 25 cents each. Hello! And since this was their annual between Christmas and New Year's 25% off sale, they were actually only 20 cents each. And in that box was a bunch of books from Techno Comics, including this one. Half Price Books is not a sponsor of this podcast, but, you know, if you have one nearby, and they are in about 15 states, check out their cheap comic book deals. But enough of where I got this book from, let's talk about the book itself. There is a lot of exposition at the start of this issue, and I don't know, I think by issue 9 of an ongoing story, there shouldn't be this much exposition. But once we get to the characters of Stuart the Scientist and the politicians and Zerus himself, the issue gets a whole lot better. But even then, it's still a lot of talk. And I mean a lot of talk. The scene with Zerus and Akemi is good visually because we get the idea that the alien may be 10 feet tall. So even though this three-page scene is all talk, the visuals are very strong and dynamic and show the pair speaking with each other from a whole range of different angles. So the distinct physical dominance that Zerus would have over any human is clearly communicated. Zerus's design, like the cover shows, is almost over the top, but not quite. His skin is a pale red, and he wears gold armor over his chest and shoulders with a weird blue loincloth of some kind. He is compared to a pterodactyl in the issue, but think of him more as a walking red alligator. He has mean-looking teeth, by the way, and lots of them. I liked the book ending of The Diner in Arizona. That was nice and clearly sets the stage for the next issue. I imagine some of the characters we met in the first few pages, specifically the waitress, I would imagine, will play a role in issue 10 as... Uh, the rest of the aliens have crash-landed just outside the diner. But that crash-landing, which is a pretty nice full-splash ending to a story, is just about the only action in the issue. I recently reviewed another book with a lot of talky-talk back in episode 16, the Stormwatch Team Achilles episode. But this one, I think, did the talky-talk better as the back-and-forth with the aliens in space gave a greater sense of tension to this issue, and the worldwide nature of the alien event is portrayed very well. The official title of this book, by the way, is Leonard Nimoy's Primordials, and it is described in the credit page as based on concepts created by Leonard Nimoy and Isaac Asimov which was a key component to the Technocomics business model. And it was their business model that first intrigued me about the company. There was a point in time at which I owned nearly every Technocomics issue published. Now, by the mid-1990s, I had whittled my comics reading down to very few titles that I was just waiting for a good place to stop, to be honest. Green Arrow and Legends of the Dark Knight, I stopped at issue 100. And I was still getting Iron Man at this point as well. But there were no new books that I was adding to the list at this point in my collecting life. 
Emily was not yet in school. I was just out of grad school trying to cobble together a living doing some accounting on the side and seeking out part-time college teaching. But then I heard about techno comics, and not via the comic book press, but via the business press. I saw the story of a comic book company, Big Entertainment, going public on the stock market. Techno Comics was an imprint of Big Entertainment, and they had what I thought was a really interesting business model with two distinguishing characteristics. One, they would team up with celebrities and authors to create properties. For context, other titles in their line include Neil Gaiman's Mr. Hero, Gene Roddenberry's Lost Universe, and Mickey Spillane's Mike Danger. And two, they would try to go around the standard distribution and retail aspects of comics to both sell directly to readers and in malls via freestanding comic book kiosks. Obviously, the distribution part of their plan failed, but I thought it was a really interesting idea. The properties of Techno are currently owned by Hollywood Media, the successor company to Big Entertainment, and they are still on the stock market as H-O-L-L. In full disclosure, I do not currently own, nor have I ever owned, any stock in either company. Overall, Techno Comics published from March 1995 to April 1997, and did a total of about 150 issues of maybe 12 titles or so, depending on how you count one-shots and spin-offs and minis. I found a blog post by the writer of this issue, Christopher Mills, talking about working for Big Slash Techno. I'll link to the article in the blog post for this episode, but here are a few highlights. Working for Techno Comics in the mid-90s was a bizarre experience, but one good thing that came out of it was the opportunity to write the company's flagship book, Leonard Nimoy's Primordials. The company had a lot of trouble at first coming up with a writer that Nimoy liked, so they had several people write up sample scripts for him to review. He chose me, surprising everybody. The artists on the book during my run were great, especially Scott Eden and Ron Randall. Story-wise, the one issue that Pat Broderick drew was probably my favorite. And yes, I did meet Mr. Spock. He was much skinnier and shorter than I would have expected, but he was cool and genuinely complimentary about my work. I have a memo from his office in my files that describes my writing as having a theatricality, an intelligence, a sense of Wagnerian epic. Well, no wonder I kind of liked it. The verdict on Leonard Nimoy's Primortals number 9, I did kind of like it. One of the running themes of this podcast, and one of the things I've rediscovered about myself doing the podcast, is that I really tend to like science fiction comic books. And I'll be totally honest here, I really tend to especially like science fiction comic books that cost me around 25 cents. And certainly there's some nostalgia happening here for me, as I was a reader of this title and many of the sister publications from Techno and Big in the mid-90s these ones representing the last new comics I would experiment with for probably 15 years. This might break the record for most obscure comic I've covered so far on the podcast. I would love to hear from anyone who remembers these books from when they came out, 
or maybe even read some of them, or at most, has maybe ever heard of them at least? That wraps up my coverage of Primordials number 9, bringing episode 23 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 24, we'll be picking up a story right where we left it off way back in episode 11, as we look at Micronauts number 7, Marvel Comics, cover dated March 1979. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.